0: Hello everyone, Kathy here. On this episode, me and E talk about the racist and sexist imagery and beliefs in Europe and America that we propose led directly into the visual language of cartooning. This is a difficult topic to discuss, so for that reason, we want to be sure that our audience knows ahead of time what we're talking about. Thank you! Thank you! G. Johnson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator.
1: And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist and scholar.
0: On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. Yeah, so what are we doing today? Well, today's topic is something that I was really interested in pursuing when I was in grad school, Yeah. but my grads program was only nine months long, and I ended up focusing more on education and child development and I focused less on the history of comics and cartooning. So this episode, episode of 12, I sort of proposed this idea to E because I finally wanted to um, tackle it. Yes. What I really wanted to do was think about the history and look at the history of physiognomy, caricature, And the history of how to draw books and the development of the visual language of cartooning. Right. right. Because I believe that there's a lot of stereotype that sort of is really embedded in the history of the visual language that is in a lot of comic books. Yes. So that's something I wanted to examine.
1: Yeah. And you're right about there being a lot of it, like kind of embedded in the history of cartooning itself. Um, A lot of what I'm going to be discussing, I kind of focused more on sort of doing like a more in-depth mapping of the the history of minstrelsy, like how it came about and how it went on to sort of inform uh, the development of uh, comics and cartooning as art forms in the in America and there is definitely like a lot of uh, like a very strong relationship between sort of like these ideas of caricatures and sort of like the practices in cartooning.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a difficult topic to sort of address. And part of it has to do with it's a lot of inside baseball. And yes. this is why I ended up not doing it in grad school. You have to sort of be pretty familiar already with comic books and Mm -hmm. what the landscape is like and what the landscape has been like it's it's sort of a harder topic for someone who is unfamiliar with cartooning to just jump right into
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and it's also like a lot of research and sort of laying a foundation um and so It was really, it's really helpful to be collaborating with you, E, on this subject. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I mean, this is definitely, um, as with every topic we kind of address, uh, there's so much material. I kind of like zeroed in on like the time period of like from the early 19th century up through about like the 1950s, but like there is a lot. And even, like, uh, looking outside of, like, the framework, like, I'm obviously looking at, like, U.S. minstrelsy traditions, but, like, outside of that framework, there's a lot of material on, like, the history of uh, stereotyping and caricature in, like, European cultures and in other cultures, so.
0: Yeah, I actually end up focusing, a lot of the sources that I found are actually London, England, and actually this is a really good continuation off of the canon conversation, (laughs) because this is very much a part of like the art history um aspect of it Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is like this follows that line of art history and the canonization of certain visuals um and certain drawing choices I suppose is what I'm trying to say yeah um I ended up doing a lot of primary source research so I ended up going to Um, The special collections at the RISD library, the Rhode Island School of Design library. And then I also went to the Rhode Island School of Design museum print room. So I looked at a lot of originals that are like hundreds of years old. And me and E are probably going to overlap a little bit. um, But I don't think that there's any problem with sort of reiterating uh, certain ideas throughout the podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a meaty one.
0: This is a meaty one. (laughs) (laughs) So if you are ready... there's nothing else you
1: want to mention okay cool cool okay so i wanted to sort of start us out with a paper from 1999 called stereotypes in the media so what it's by bradley w gorham and it was published in the howard journal of communication and what uh gorham's doing in this paper is attempting to create a theoretical framework for uh in the words of his abstract, how stereotypical representations in media texts can link social level racial myths with individual level cognition. Um, so he's pulling on the idea of semiotics, which is a, um, critical study of signs, basically like how certain, uh, ideas become like signifiers in literature and in like society. And also like pulling on a lot of like psychology to like address this question of like, why is stereotyping like an important issue to study? So I'm going to start off with this. um, In this context, social reality may be thought of as that large portion of unverified information that is shared by us and by others around us. And that as they seem to have the same information and ideas that we do, we come to believe that everyone, quote unquote, ought to see things the way we do. This conception of social reality is directed towards the individual, but the phrase social reality can be looked at in terms of social reality or social reality. The first group takes the cognitive system of the individual as its unit of analysis and lets social reality refer to the person's frame of reference in a social situation. The members of the second group examine the social system as their unit of analysis and look on social reality as the actual agreement or consensus among members of that system. And the second vein, Gerbner, which is a a source he's citing, places social reality in relation to culture, where culture, quote, is a symbolic organization that cultivates our concept of existence, priorities, values and relationships. It provides the overall framework in which we imagine what we do not encounter directly and we interpret what we do encounter directly. Thus, social reality is a very important construct determining human interaction and human interaction uh, with the communication media. Stereotypes can be thought of, then, as a particular subset of social reality beliefs. They are understandings about particular social groups that we have learned from our social world. Such meanings and representations are not universally agreed upon, however. Marx would remind us that the dominant understandings of a society tend to be the understandings of the dominant social group of that society. Those who are in dominant social position have the power to define the dominant understandings and thus have a tremendous ability to make their definitions appear natural and unarguable. So what he's saying is that there's two different sort of like two different theories of what social reality is. The idea that um, there is a reality that's sort of constructed through a group societal understanding of reality. um, That's not like objective, basically. It's like based on like how we as a society interpret different signs Um, Mm -hmm. and that stereotypes are a type of this social reality where they are like created by the dominant group and used to sort of enforce ideas about outgroups within society. So he goes on to write, um, thus the central question of importance posed in the beginning of the paper can now be addressed more fully. Racial stereotypes in the media are important because they are a significant contributor to the maintenance of racial myths by consistently and repeatedly offering associations between language in the form of signs and context myths that are consistent with these myths. This has two important results. One, with repeated exposure, automaticity, between certain signs and individual myths will develop. And two, since automatically primed contexts are available for subsequent processing, myths will affect the processing of subsequent information. So the conclusion that he's drawing here um, or like proposing here is that uh, the stereotypes become sort of ingrained in the sort of like our social conception to the point that there's an automatic referencing happening. Like when we see, Mm. a person in real life, our brain is primed to pull on those stereotypes in the media that we've like uh, consumed over time. Mm. And that'll like uh, thus affect the way that we like perceive an actual person.
0: There was a paragraph from the preface of no laughing matter that Mm -hmm. I wanted to say. I think this would be a good spot for it. Um, So this is no laughing matter. My guess is E is about going to talk about it Mm -hmm. shortly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. book from 2016 the goal of this book is not to reopen old wounds but to initiate discussion about the multi-layered and complex ways visual humor has attracted our attention throughout history and across different media and geographies The essays here collected explore the interrelated themes of human representation and classification and how visual images, not just art, have constructed and provided the means to produce troubling images of human worth through stereotyping, emphasizing beauty or ugliness by association or by ascribing spiritual properties to facial features or a combination of these. These have often been linked to race, nationality, or ethnicity, which are best understood not as fixed categories, but as historically contingent and fluid. Such issues show history acting directly on the present in ways we do not sufficiently understand, but which we need urgently to examine if we are to deal constructively with increasingly multicultural societies and have diverse historical memories, constructs, and, importantly for us, images. To begin thinking about such racially inflicted visual images constructively requires expertise across disciplinary boundaries that often separate art, literary, political, and social history, psychology, perception, geography, ethnic studies, etc. Cool. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. No,
1: that's good. And that goes along with sort of like the conclusion to this paper, which is what I wanted to like mm. uh, end on with this is um, this is sort of a longer quote, but I think it's good. Given this theoretical framework, the answer to the so what question goes something like this. Racial stereotypes in the media can influence our interpretations of media content in a way that supports dominant racial myths. By automatically priming racial stereotype congruent interpretation subsequent media texts, and by doing so repeatedly and consistently, stereotypes in the media can maintain unjust, harmful, and dominating understandings of race by influencing the way individuals interpret media texts. Such automatic priming can occur whether or not the individual involved necessarily endorses the stereotype, and although people can subsequently argue against the automatically primed constructs, in a sense the damage has already been done. The linguistic labels have strengthened yet again, ready to move interpretation in the direction of dominant understandings whenever one's guard is down. What to do? Well, such a framework suggests that for those of us who have already been socialized into automatically engaging the racial stereotypes, we have to be ever vigilant to realize that this is going on and take the time and effort to consciously rework our interpretations of media content into an interpretation that is less stereotypical. This demands a critical and active reader of media texts. And since consistent and repeated exposure leads to automatism, we can attempt to dilute our myth congruent associations by consistently and repeatedly engaging in more critical media interpretations. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I just thought that would be a good framework for as I, like, sort of move more into, like, the timeline. Um, Absolutely. That I've constructed. And the next book I am going to talk about is actually No Laughing Matter, <laughs> which Kathy just... Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we both worked with this book, No Laughing Matter, Visual Humor and Ideas of Race, Nationality and Ethnicity, which was published in 2016 and edited by Angela Rosenthal. So I I pulled a lot from this book, but I wanted to start again with like a more broad sort of talking about the impact of caricature um so what i'm going to pull from is this is a chapter called if you tickle us do we not laugh stereotypes of jews and english graphic humor of the georgian era by frank felsenstein and he's obviously like what he's talking about is before the era that i'm working with um but i thought this was like sort of a good establishment of like caricature which has existed in uh in like european traditions of art for a long time
0: it's uh i can i will talk about that history a little bit more but it's yes. around 1790 mm-hmm. in italy did caricature start to become a thing
1: yeah so uh felsenstein writes as one of the most common forms of visual humor caricature creates what the art critic ernst gombrich described well as quote a visual interpretation of a physiognomy which we can never forget and which the victim always seems to carry around with him like a man bewitched. According to Gombrich, the function of caricature is to produce, quote, not likenesses, but equivalences, which enable us to see reality in terms of an image and an image in terms of reality. Interestingly, a comparable idea to this was expressed almost 200 years earlier by the artist Mary Darley, who contended that caricatura exhibits a comical similitude. In such a condition, we adopt an alternative mode of perception whereby the caricatural figure stands in for and sometimes replaces the original upon whom it is based. Um, so this is echoing what I was reading in the So What essay that, uh, like, caricatures through repetition of, like, what they represent basically become the stand-in image for a, a subset of people basically, right?
0: Should I actually give a definition of physiognomy? Yes! This is from the essay from No Laughing Matter by Catherine Hart. Yes. I don't know if you read that one.
1: I probably did. I don't think I pulled anything from it.
0: Yeah. So um, she sort of has a definition of physiognomy. That's like probably one of the main topics of what this episode is going to be about. so. (laughs) Um, So this is from page 77 from No Laughing Matter. The history of Rachel Caricature in the later 18th century is inextricably linked to the pseudoscience of physiognomic study. In the 1780s and 90s, the idea that faces, particularly in profile, could be read for qualities of character, morality, or level of intelligence gained a strong foothold in European and English imagination, and visual representation was employed to illustrate this concept. I actually, E, do you want to do a little bit more back and forth? Because I actually have like examples from the original essays of physiognomy. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. So this is uh this is from the Essays of Physiognomy, which is 1853 published in London. So this is like maybe 60 years after s- what we were just talking about when it was like extremely popular. Yeah. But what's important is this Essays of Physiognomy. What I wanted to point out is the date of 1853, right? Okay. So yes. So in England To enslave people, it was illegal in 1833. So this was published 20 years after the abolition of slavery. But slavery was not abolished in the United States until 1865. So this was before the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And I think that's I mean, that's extremely key to what the idea of physiognomy is, right? So it's like this fake pseudoscience.
1: Yeah, and I actually am going to talk a little bit about the relationship between um, minstrelsy and abolitionist movements in a little bit, though. Wonderful.
0: Awesome. So I just wanted to point out those dates. I also, because of who we are, I do want to point out that even though the 13th Amendment of the United States of America um, abolished um, slavery, it is still legal as punishment for a crime there is still legal slavery in the United States yes. of America. Yes. All right. So this is the essays of physiognomy which was written written in German by Lavater, John Caspar Lavater mm-hmm. and translated in English by Thomas Holcroft. So I got to see the original book, the 1853 book. This is what he written, this is the beginning which is called the address but it's sort of like a preface or introduction. Physiognomy, whether understood in its most extensive or confined signification, is the origin of all human decisions, efforts, actions, expectations, fears, and hopes, of all pleasing and unpleasing sensations which are occasioned by external objects, nor is there a man to be found who is not daily influenced by physiognomy. Not a man who has not figured to himself a countenance exceedingly lovely or exceedingly hateful, not a man who does not more or less the first time he encounters a stranger observe, estimate, compare, and judge him, according to appearances, although he might hitherto have been a stranger to the science of physiognomy." <laughs> <laughs> it is therefore a manifest truth that their weather is not sensible of all men are daily influenced by <laughs> physiognomy. Um and then I have some examples. Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um so he's got this book was like 500 pages long. Um so this is something this is from the physiognomical rules uh, this is to be avoided. Okay. Whoever, without squinting, is accustomed to look on both sides at once with small, clear eyes in unequal directions, who is besides black teeth and whether of higher, low stature, abode back an oblique, contemptuous laugh. Him avoid, notwithstanding with all acuteness, knowledge, and wit, as a false and mean person destitute of honor, shameless, <laughs> to crafty, and self-inserted. <laughs> Um, They also say you should avoid Large bulky persons with small eyes Who have uh, round cheeks You should also avoid great eyes But with small countenances and small noses Of persons in little size for who, when they laugh, evidently show that they are not cheerful, and amid <laughs> all the joy seem to manifest at your presence, cannot conceal a malicious smile. I mean, this is just, there's hundreds of these. So, that's just sort of a gives you example. It's just nonsense and hooey, right? It's just yes. judging people from, for, from their appearances and acting as though that is science.
1: Yes. Um, so bef- one last thing before I move us into the sort of the timeline I've constructed. Um, uh, the the uh, quotes I pulled so far have sort of addressed issues with stereotyping as a, like a cultural analysis, psychology kind of analysis way. I also wanted to pull in this quote from um, Cultural Diversity in the U.S. Media, which was uh, published in 1998. The chapter specifically is um, Disney Does Diversity, the Social Context of Racial Ethnic Imagery by Alan J. Spector. Suspector writes, the use of the word offensive to object to racist stereotypes is often ineffectual because it misses the point. Some things are offensive to some people, but they are appropriate and their use should be defended. Those who object may well be expressing hypersensitive sensibilities that are not valid reasons for censorship. Racist stereotyping is worse than offensive, it is abusive. Calling it offensive opens the door. Uh, to the charge that the critics are hypersensitive censors. Moreover, calling it offensive is actually too mild of a criticism. The stereotyping adds to the oppression of a victimized people. There is no reference work that can be used to evaluate whether ethnic humor or ethnic folktales are racist or not. There is no simple barometer or template that can be mechanically utilized to measure the amount of racially or ethnically prejudiced ideology in a particular expression." On the other hand, one need not have a PhD in social psychology to discern the impact of various forms of expression. If the stereotype is negative, if the target is a subordinated group, and especially if the stereotype reinforces a commonly held fallacious negative stereotype of an oppressed group, then such stereotyping can legitimately be called abuse, and its proclamation can justifiably be opposed by those who oppose racial prejudice and racial discrimination. So I just wanted to... Uh, also provide that as a, like, slightly less clinical <laughs> um, discussion of the topic at hand. So I am going to sort of, co- I have constructed a little timeline of um, the relationship between minstrelsy and um, slavery in the U.S. Um, and the earliest uh, forms of animation and comics in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So just as an overview, um Slavery began in the U.S. in the beginning of the 16th century. Was officially legalized in the 17th century in 1641. Um, all of my dates are coming from the, a history of slavery in the United States from the National Geographic website.
0: Yeah, I looked at that one too. Yeah. Did you see the part where the last state to abolish slavery was Mississippi in 1995? It was still on the books.
1: Yeah, well, you know.
0: No, I think <laughs> I think it's important to point out. No, this, is, this yeah. is not old
1: old <laughs> it's, it's not, not no old. it's super not and i'm gonna kind of talk about that too but um so one of the first sources i looked at was a documentary called ethnic notion that was by directed by marlon riggs in 1986 which was a it looked at the history of specific racial stereotypes uh like the the sambo the mammy the Pickaninny, all of those um mm-hmm. so um It's hard to quote from a documentary. I'm going to basically like say who's speaking and then say what they said.
2: Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Okay.
1: Um, That's perfect. Great. Uh, So the narrator, the happy Sambo began his stage life in the late 1820s when a man named T.D. Rice brought a new sensation to American theater. Rice was known as an Ethiopian delineator, a white comedian who performed in blackface. The name of his routine would later become the symbol of segregation in the South. So 1820s, That is post the Haitian Revolution, which happened in 1804 when the island of Haiti kind of rose up and became an independent state. 1807 uh, in the U.S., the slave trade is officially, quote unquote, outlawed, meaning that Mm. they couldn't bring any new ships over, but it wasn't enforced. Like we have documents from as late as 1860 of new ships coming over. Um, Mm. But just so you like have sort of a construct in your head of like this time period of like the kind of like still in the middle of slavery, like slavery being an active practice, but starting to see legislation try to pull away from it. Yeah. So narrator in 1843, a group of black face performers joined together to form a single troupe. Instead of delineators, they called themselves minstrels. The minstrel show captivated broad audiences, mostly in the north and emerged as America's first form of national popular entertainment. Like movies today, successful minstrels play to the taste and values of their audience. Jim Crow, reflecting popular demand, evolved in the singing-dancing sambo. This light-hearted figure became one of the most potent forces in the politics of slavery. And then there's, they talked to uh, Pat Turner, who, is a professor at the, who was a professor at the University of Massachusetts. The minstrelsy era really took off at the same time as the abolitionist movement took off, and you could almost sort of chart the two. As there were people working to end slavery, people working to eradicate slavery, there were also people increasing the exaggerated portrayals that we find in the minstrel material.
0: Hmm. You're still talking about um, performance, like like theater performance. Yeah, so minstrel shows were staged
1: performances where the white entertainers would put on blackface and sing and dance as, like, exaggerated portrayals of uh, black slaves. Okay, yep. Narrator. Minstrel caricatures mirrored the prevailing belief that slavery was good for the slave since it drew upon his, quote-unquote, natural inferiority and willingness to serve. Slaves were content. The proof was offered in the image of the happy Sambo. And then they talked to George Fredrickson of Stanford University. The old plantation was presented as a kind of paradise. White Americans were being constantly bombarded by the image of happy slaves. Is what it amounted to. So slavery must be a good institution if the slaves were happy and the masters were kindly. The that whole cultural image of the benign, the beneficent institution was projected constantly in the period before, immediately before the Civil War. So there is like a very strong relationship between the development of these uh, minstrel shows and the abolitionist movement, which was working to um, emancipate slaves. Uh, And I think of the right word. Sort of like, so they were working to emancipate emancipate slaves and like objecting to this uh, horrible institution, horrific institution. And at the same time, the most, the earliest form of mass popular media, national popular media in the US was these minstrel shows
2: Mm. that
1: were dehumanizing and like trying to present an image of black slaves as inferior and happy to be enslaved.
0: The, um... Just like an aside. Yes. I saw the um, National Poet Laureate a few days ago, uh, Tracy K. Smith,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and she was doing work on uh, Civil War era black soldiers. Um, yes. She did some poetry on that. Um, and she talked about how she prefers the term enslaved peoples because then it wasn't oh, okay. like a like a noun, you know, like a proper noun instead of the, just the word slave. Right. Um, yeah. Just mentioning that.
1: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, as uh, Kathy said, slavery is officially ab- abolished in 1865, which is 22 years after the debut of the Minstrel Show. So, not a lot of time
2: mm. has
1: passed. And um, now I'm going to segue into kind of talking about animation. Um, just as like a as a reference, I'm going to talk about comics in a little bit specifically. But uh, 1897 is when the Yellow Kid, which is considered the first. Uh, comic strip in Amer- in the US is that's when it debuts. Um, so 1897, uh, 30 odd years after the abolition of slavery, and in the middle of all of this, like these minstrel shows, basically.
0: Yeah. And before before there was a comic strip, there were illustrations and stuff. So oh, yeah. it's not like we were leaping into the. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. So this is from um, Birth of an Industry, Blackface Minstrelsy, and the Rise of American Animation was published in 2015. It's by Nicholas Salmond. And Salmon writes, This format, referring to minstrelsy, uh, continued as a standalone entertainment until the 1880s, when minstrelsy was gradually subsumed via burlesque into vaudeville, sharing the stage with Irish, German, and Hebrew acts, with jugglers, comedians, and performing animals, seeming to fade as stage performance only as vaudeville gave way to radio, movies, and television. This genealogy is important to the history of animation, not simply because some of the first animators this study examines were vaudeville enthusiasts, but because the earliest American cartoons were components in vaudeville performances themselves, deriving particularly from lightning sketch acts and from minstrel performances. Mm. Um, So he goes on to write. The porousness between different modes of performance in media then and now argues against a notion of succession and for models of interconnection and appropriation. Performers in one medium often worked in others and took with them from one medium to the next their signature material and shtick. Animation inherited this appropriative impulse from its forebears, with the one animation house regularly lifting a character or gag from another with only minor emendations. And because the figure of the black-faced minstrel itself was an appropriative fantasy of the black laboring body, a moment's consideration of the minstrel's physiognomy, and its gestural economy will also delineate some of the most common visual conventions that animations' continuing characters shared with live minstrels, and will set the stage for considering how those characteristics eventually became vestigial. Um. So, Birth of an Industry is uh, Salmon's examining the relationship between minstrelsy acts and vaudeville and early American animation. Mm. The 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 um lightning sketch acts he speaks of were a cartoonist would stand on stage and usually write a word or something and then, like, very quickly change it into a drawing.
0: Can you tell me some dates for these For these early cartoons? Yes. Um, I'm just wondering what the relationship is between cartoons and comic strip. Like, w- what are the dates for the two of those? Yes, I think around... Because they're really close to each other, right? Yeah,
1: more or less the same time. Yeah. Disney, I, I know Disney came to prominence in the 19th. 30s. um, But obviously there was a lot of animation studios before Disney. Okay. So between roughly 1913 and 1916, animation shifted extremely rapidly from a cottage industry into a fully realized and rationalized industrial complex. So like end of 1800s, I'm looking for, um, okay. So yeah, like vaudeville, um, I just Wikipedia it real quick. Vaudeville was the um, sort of the 1880s to the 1930s Okay, so minstrelsy gives way like overt minstrelsy shows give way to vaudeville shows, which continued to incorporate minstrelsy, but also had other caricatures and stereotypes and performances in them. Um, And then animation was being developed at the same time, kind of as like late 1800s, very, very early 1900s, um, which is also the same time as the Yellow Kid and uh, sort of the comic strip becoming a thing.
0: Right. Yes, I have commodification of African American typographies from the book by Ian Gordon, "Comic Strips and Consumer Culture, 1890 to 1945." He sort of lays the groundwork from from going from the Sambo and his funny noises, the comic strip 1914-ish, mm-hmm. to Felix the Cat, and yeah. sort of talks about which is 1923, and sort of talks about how, um the stereotype and the physiognomy of the sambo character becomes these like Felix the cat like and crazy cat like these like um, yeah. sort of animal animal creatures
1: yeah yeah i have um i have a i have a chapter um from cultural diversity that also kind of talks about crazy cat and um
0: and then crazy cat becomes mickey mouse that it's all within the same few decades.
1: Yeah, and it's like um, Salmon is saying, these animation studios and these performers were constantly, like, stealing from each other and just incorporating bits. So that's why it, 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 like, overlaps so much because everyone was taking and like, from the same sources, the same racist sources, and um, the more, like, through iterations, it became more vestigial to the point where we don't actively recognize it as being minstrel tropes, but it is.
0: Yes, vestigial... Is some a word I wanted to find because that's the word I was trying to think of too. Yes, a trace of something that is disappearing or no longer exists. So it's like a, a, a sort of a, a leftover. The mm-hmm. like I mean this example is the last vestiges of colonialism. That's right. The dictionary on Google offers. Yeah, and um... Mark Les Mark Legacy Residue Trace. <laughs> yeah. And he
1: he gives, uh, Salmon gives examples of like visual uh, vestiges of minstrel shows, um, including characters wearing white gloves, Mm -hmm. the addition of white makeup around the eyes and mouth and the reddening of the lips, which if you look, I mean, if you look at like Mickey Mouse is like the most blatant example, right? Yeah. Of like, this is a character that obviously like the blacked out body and like the way that the face is designed, it looks like it's pulling directly from those traditions. Yes. And there's other, there's, it also includes, like, plots in a lot of early uh, animations and comics of, like, falling into, like, the di- the particular dynamics between, like, Sambo characters, Mammy characters and stuff.
0: Yeah, so it's not just, we aren't just talking about the images, but we're also talking about joke structure mm-hmm. and, like, yeah, they're all pulling from the same thing. It's not just the way it looks. Yeah, like, the, the, qu- the quote-unquote, like,
1: lazy working person trope type yeah. stuff. Yeah, that pulls directly yeah. from, like, Sambo imagery. So Salmon goes on to write, rather than becoming less racist as live minstrelsy faded, American commercial animation engaged in an intensification of racist imagery and its depiction of music generally and swing music in particular, uh, as in racially problematic cartoons such as many of the Warner Brothers' uh, *Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes and George Powell's Stop Action Puppet Tunes, which was 1932 to 1947. And in Disney's combination of live action and animation Song of the South, which Song of the South was 1946. So again, in this um, 19, so we're moving sort of from like the, the beginning of the 1900s to like the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s era. Mm-hmm. And it's not lessening. It's getting more aggressive is what he's saying. And ethnic ethnic notions talks about this too in the, uh, basically, the, the narrator of Ethnic Notion says, According to myth, slavery then segregation had managed to, quote-unquote, domesticate Black Americans. But without white control, Blacks uh, reverted to savagery. In the 1920s and 30s, the savage stereotype acquired a new dimension. Hmm. So, and this is another quote from Fredrickson of Stanford. Um, there was a lot of talk about the new Negro during the 1920s of Blacks being able to assert their manhood, their independence. But at the same time, there was a strain of older ideas that persisted. The idea of uh, reversion to savagery except that savagery was now refined. So instead of being like these like lazy, happy, cutesy, um, dehumanized stereotypes, it changed into uh, the like, quote unquote, brute stereotypes of like the hyper violent uh, black characters
0: in uh, comics
1: in uh, media across media
0: all right let me look up yes so this would be around the time of the harlem harlem renaissance yes. Wait, 1920
1: yeah like um like salmon said it was um animation in particular uh de- the way it depicted swing music and music mm-hmm. during this time period like because there were animated music videos and things like that um or not music videos but you know what i mean animated
0: yeah <laughs>
1: and they were yeah uh, very aggressive in their portrayals
0: and then at the same time there's like this fantastic Harlem Renaissance where right. <laughs> um, people were um, publishing their own work and there were like illustrators and poets. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, like the difference between what was happening in like a fine art movement within a culture and then the reflective mass media. Yes. Yeah. That was uh, mocking.
1: Um. So Sam and um, just to finish out, Kind of might what I pulled from that. Um, Cartoons created visual correlations that associated African-Americans with slavery, the jungle and animals literalizing and animating longstanding stereotypes. Simply put the demise of minstrelsy on the stage coincided with a period of far more intense racist caricature in American animation. One that ended only with the rise of the post-war civil rights movement, and then only slowly. Um, So this is very recent history now, like, the civil rights movement yeah. we're talking like 50 60s. Mhm. It is like I always think about the fact like my dad my father was born in 49, so he was in school during segregation. Like we've talked about that.
0: Yeah, and I mean I have a little quote here. I mean talking about Frederick Wortham. Yeah. Right? So he's 1954, seduction of the innocent, right? We've talked about him, that was episode 4 for us, but um so this is a quote from Leonard Rifas, his Article called "Racial Imagery, Racism, Individualism, and Underground Comics." So, underground comics is right after the '50s, right? '60s era, yeah. Work, um, but he's talking about um, comics both reflect and affect the wider society, but not in a simple, mechanical way. They supply evidence of widely shared assumptions and also teach particular ways of looking at things. Dr. Frederick Wortham, an anti-racist psychiatrist made both of these arguments in the 1950s. He submitted panels from American comic books as evidence reflecting American racism in one of the court cases that led to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which ordered the end of racial segregation in public schools in 1954. Yeah. Wortham's, Wortham's best-known book, Seduction of the Innocent, included an extensive s- section condemning American comic books for an indelibly impressing on their young readers that exist... And then um, he sort of lists off a bunch of racist stereotypes. Yeah, I know it. Se- it sounds like old hat, but that's. I mean, the this is what was contained within comic books.
1: Yes, yeah, and I have. Um, that's like a fan- a good segue because I have um, this chapter from Cultural Diversity in the U.S. Media uh, to go back to that book, um, Minorities and Newsprint Cartoons uh, by Scott McLean, mm-hmm. which is sort of a study of the early like pre-1940s comic strips
0: right because comic books came from collections of newspaper comic strips yes yes which would be 40s 50s yep
1: yeah so he starts out by saying um from the introduction introduction of cartoons and newsprint blatantly racist and derogatory minority stereotypes have been portrayed as the objects of hostility ridicule and humiliation from the quote-unquote savage natives representing indigenous culture from north america to the polynesian islands to the Black Sambo or Mammy depictions, minority characters have played the role on the receiving end of physical and verbal abuse. And I really wanted to highlight, like, before 1943, strips such as Gasoline Alley featured main protagonists like Walt Willett being cared for by a Black Mammy. The main character represented the majority culture, and interpersonal <laughs> communication between majority, main characters, and minority, secondary or tertiary characters was often top-down, giving instructions and the like. This model of communication between the characters implied an organizational hierarchy, um, just as the yellow kid related to his opponent, um, referencing a, a yellow kid strip where he beats up a, uh, a black character.
0: And just to point out, it's, it, it throws people off. The yellow kid was a white character. Yes. He just yeah. wore yellow.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I can actually give a description of the yellow kid if you think that would be.
0: I mean, we take it for granted that people know what it is, um, but I I think maybe we could benefit from
1: sure. That. Um, so this is from the same uh chapter, but it's uh so the yellow kid started in 1897. It was by uh cartoonist uh, Richard Felton. Occult, the yellow kid incorporated humor, pigeon English messages on his yellow nightshirt, and physical humor to delight readers and sell papers. Um, from his earliest work, Uko displayed racist tendencies uh, in the Yellow Kid's Great Fight. The hero hits his little black opponent so hard that he suffers a dislocated jaw. And the penultimate panel, the boy lays supine while a billy goat munches on the quote unquote wall of his head. Ooh. Yeah. And um, so he's just. Uh, I just I think that's like an interesting uh, not uh, like analysis of the top like the top down organizational structure of these characters as well because um, I think that relate that is like part of what how these depictions are structured. It's not just about the visuals; it's also about the relationships within the writing of the strip.
0: Yeah, I have a little bit from the comic strips and consumer culture book by Ian Gordon. Yeah, so we're we sort of went back to eighteen nineties to nineteen twenties. So he's saying in between the eighteen nineties and nineteen twenties, comicsters transformed a particular type of urban imagery into a national commodity. In this process, artists syndicates reshaped the rough-edged humor of the illustrated journals and the early comic strips. Ethnic humor had a place in American culture, but usually as a reference point to some other that lay outside the culture's acceptable norms. Mm -hmm. Based in cities with rapidly changing ethnic compositions, illustrated humor journals and early comic strips challenged these norms, expanding the acceptable and established comic art as both a cultural form and commodity the expansion of comic strips from the urban to a national phenomenon revealed the art form's limitations as a transformative agent i thought that i liked that because it sort of talks about how like they started to consume urban imagery consume Mm -hmm. these sort of um these changing immigration populations in um cities and sort of Mm -hmm. created jokes surrounding that but it was for a national audience right newspaper syndication yeah
1: yeah yeah definitely um and a lot of it has to do with like the way that these sort of get entrenched is it is sort of a process of (laughs) industrialization birth of a nation talks about this a lot it's sort of like the primary basis of the whole book of how um here's a quote from it actually um he's talking about animation again because this is a book about animation but i think it also applies to other fields um
0: absolutely they i mean they Animation and comics are use extremely similar drawing styles, yes. I, and joke styles. yeah, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think we need to gnash our teeth about it,
1: yeah, exactly. So this is from Birth of an industry. As the animation industry matured, the rapid standardization of its practices created an environment in which the successful conventions and tropes circulated and stabilized equally rapidly. The gloved hands, the wide painted on mouths and the orthological similarities between mice, cats and dogs and rabbits, whose bodies were all black with white highlights, became widespread so quickly because the industry's practical environment facilitated their quick condensation into standards. The same was true regarding the use of other ethnic and racial stereotypes. They succeeded because they were legible to audiences of the day, but also because they made efficient use of the limited narrative structure of the gag cartoon. Mm. So, like, as we move into industrialization, as, like, um, the output of the, like, there's an economical process uh, to, like, animation and cartooning where, like, there's a time limit. You're not just, like, spending years and years on, like, making something very thoughtful, right? You're <laughs> you're churning it out.
0: Yeah, because it's a uh, syndication that's getting published. Yes. Uh, there's a publishing deadline.
1: So uh, these stereotypes get reinforced because they're easy and you don't have to think about it and they're quick to draw. So you just do it over and over again. I actually have an interesting quote, too. Um, this is this is a quote. Fr- uh, it's in the Minority and Newsprint Cartoons uh, chapter, uh, um, but it's uh, from Milton Canliff, who is the creator of a comic strip, Terry and the Pirates, talking about in the 1930s is when um, comic strips and newspapers introduced uh, dramatic comics instead of humor. So, like, the idea that instead of it being, like, a gag every strip, there's, like, a, like a tense thing. There's, like, uh, cliffhangers. Um, mm-hmm. This is, again, uh, Milton Canliffe, the creator of the comic strip from the time period, Terry and the Pirates, on using minority characters. Terrorism cannot thrive without rascality. Slinky, oily Malayans and sundry other Eastern types have been the standard for years. Why not twist it a bit and make the number one menace a woman? One who combines all the best features of past mustache twirlers with the lure of a handsome wench. There was a woman pirate along the China coast at one time, so it wasn't beyond reality. She's fabulously wealthy. Her name, uh, Lai Choi san means mountain of wealth. That's too much for readers to remember. Call her that once to establish the atmosphere, but the Occidentals have nicknamed her the Dragon Lady. Um, and I just thought that was like a very interesting... Like, the way, the economical way in which um, these creators were thinking about these stereotypes.
0: Yeah, and actually, a lot of what I'm going to talk about in my section is going to be a lot of stuff like that. Yes, like, yeah. Um, uh, simplification and how simplification is extremely damaging.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I guess I'll say, like, because uh, we're kind of reaching the end of my timeline. Um, this is from McLean, um, the minority in newsprint cartoons. In the late 1940s and 1950s, characters of color seemed to disappear. Like all other media, comics offered a world of social myths to the recipients and contributed, among other things, to the facts that the black man became to many Americans as Invisible Man. Um, so you see historically in this time period of like the 50s, the 40s, in mainstream popular culture depictions, the, 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 the non-white depictions just kind of drop off.
0: Are you talking about newspaper strips?
1: Yeah, this is newspaper strips.
0: Not comic books.
1: I think there is a relationship in books as well, uh, just because in the the timeline of comics, the 50s is when the Comics Code Authority was established. And a lot of uh, like I have an article from uh, Saladin Ahmed on um, sort of like the relationship, how like the code kind of helped create an environment where like depictions of non-white characters, characters, not artists, like that's a different story, but, um, characters kind of dropped off after this time period as well. Um, So this is How Censors Killed the Weird, Experimental, Progressive Golden Age of Comics. Uh, It's a 2014 Buzzfeed article. The code also contained the surprising provision that ridicule or attack on any religious or racial group is never permissible. Given the countless depictions of monkey-like Japanese and minstrel show black people in Golden Age comics, one might think this provision is a good thing. But Murphy, meaning um, Charles Murphy, who was the code, the, the, uh, the person that they appointed to run the code. Basically, he was the head of the Comics Code Authority. But Murphy soon made it clear that this provision really meant that black people in comic books would no longer be tolerated in any form. When EC Comics reprinted the science fiction story Judgment Day by Al Fedstein and Joe Orlando, uh, which had originally been printed to little controversy before the code, Murphy claimed the story violated the code and that the black astronaut had to be made white in order for the story to run. Hmm. EC defiantly ran the story anyway, but Murphy had made a target of them, and the company was essentially forced out of the comics business. The message was clear. If comics were to be tolerated in this new post-war order, they had to be purged of assertive women, of people of color, of challenges to authority, and even of working class urban slang. And so the comics code hacked and mangled comics until they fit into patriarchal, conservative, white, suburban social order that was taking over every other sphere of American life. So this is comic strips were not controlled by the code. Um, This is books. But I do think there is like a post-war that is like sort of a post-war you see it sort of across the board with strips.
0: You're talking about World War II.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I'm just going to, so sort of still in this post, this sort of like um, post-war 19, sort of like 40s era. This is from Birth of an Industry again. Whether in live cinema or in cartoons, um, the transition to sound was a contest in spatialized practices. One that had a racial dimension more or less evident at any given moment. In addition to replacing live acts that employed local performers of different races and ethnicities and the transition from live to recorded amusements, Cartoons also promulgated and stabilized fantasies of the bodies in ways that live performance, however stereotypical, never could. Not only did American animation repeatedly play on some of the same ethnic and racial stereotypes deployed on the vaudeville stage and in some short subject films, but many cartoons also replayed the struggle between a racialized performing object, the trademark character as minstrel, and its creator, a tenth battle between maker and the thing made. So I wanted to highlight this because uh, that I think is a really key point. Obviously, sound, the development of sound effects, cartoons left are like printed comics less. But um, one, that these animated films um, and like recorded films in general replaced live acts where there were non-white performers that might have had a chance to bring more humanity to what they were doing. But in specifically cartoons, because the bodies are drawn, you can stabilize this idea of like what the body looks like because real people obviously vary
0: Uh, tremendously,
1: but cartoon, you can draw it whenever you want.
0: Right. That's a good point. Um,
1: And I wanted to take that to segue into um, just very, very briefly the problem with the poo by uh, Hari Kondabolu, which uh, came out in 2017 and Hari Kondabolu is a comedian and a uh, Desi American and He did this documentary about the character Apu on The Simpsons, who has sort of become, for a long time, was basically the only Indian American character in like mainstream television. And I don't know if I have like a specific quote I want to pull so much as I wanted to like highlight it as another example of like how this has sort of continued into the modern Right. Like this hasn't like gone away or gotten better in the post uh, civil rights era. The Simpsons debuted in 1989. Right. And it's still going on. It's still running. Um, And in the documentary, basically what he does is he speaks to a lot of other Indian Americans and talks about they talk sort of about how they have been like how they have been called a poo, how people have like used his like trade, his little like catchphrase as like a basically a signifier of like making fun of them.
2: Mm.
1: There's a a really good quote from um, Utkarsh Anbudkar, who is an actor in Pitch Perfect. He says, this one character created so many problems psychologically, emotionally for so many people. They didn't mean for it to happen. We just were underrepresented, underrepresented, and so we struggled. Um, Which again, kind of ties back to the idea of the caricature usurping an actual picture of like a person. Mm. And also I wanted to bring it up because Apu is a character that's voiced by a white man. So yes. this is another like what they talked what, like what um, Salmon's talking about in these filmed acts and animation replacing live acts. Uh, the actual people of color were in in animation. There's like this double um, where the character can be drawn to be non-white and still be performed by a white actor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Hank Azaria, who does the voice for Apu, based his performance of Apu on Peter Sellers doing a brown face portrayal of an Indian person. Also. So there's mm. like all these layers. But I just wanted to bring that up one, because I think it's a really important documentary, and because I think it's a good example of how this is still like an ongoing issue,
0: basically. Yes. Thank you very much, E. Mm-hmm. Quite the really fantastic, fantastic overview of this history. Um, so what I wanted to talk about in my section was mm-hmm. the history of art education and sort of examine how the direct connection between physiognomy and modern cartooning and especially what i really wanted to look at was how to draw cartooning books i mean it's interesting when i tell people that i teach comic books in the in an art education setting um, so many people sort of imagine these how to draw books yeah and so and i i find these prob- these books extremely problematic and so, like I was saying in the introduction, uh, part of what I wanted to do with this episode was to be able to look at how the this history of physiognomy and the this history of stereotyping in cartooning, and sort of try to make just like of just draw the line yes. to what these how to draw books are doing. So thank you so much, E for doing a lot of the legwork. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to attempt to create a connection between what comic books are doing now and mm-hmm. this history. So I want to sort of re-look at, we did this episode on the canon, yeah. right? So a lot of what the canon was doing, and in fact, what the word canon was referring to is the the idea of the perfect human or the ideal, right? And this is like really sort of a fundamental backbone to art education as the idea of the canon the idea of like perfect human anatomy yes and so i think i'm gonna go through my sources and my, my materials chronologically so like i said i visited the rhode island school of design drawing and print room so i got to look at all a lot of these materials like the original prints and books of these materials it was really awesome opportunity yeah uh so this book titled elementary art or the use of chalk and lead pencil it was written by jd harding it was published in the 1700s in london okay so i want you to keep in mind the idea of the canon and uh the beautiful right so this is from page 19 from harding's book elementary art by observation and comparison the patient investigator of nature discovers beauties lying scattered and veiled amidst her blemishes. Beauties which are assembled and concentrated in the works of those abundant excellencies made them worthy of imitation and study, hoping the eye to become sensible of those accidental defects in nature everywhere mixed up with all her beauties." complementing knowledge whereby the former is separated from the latter and they accomplishing a form more perfect than any one original. At the same time, the exact form of all objects are learned a desire is induced to express that knowledge correctly and tastefully, and that the surest foundation is laid for the food, taste, and refinement so necessary to direct the impulses of true genius. Okay, so what Harding is saying is uh, accompanying these, this quote are two drawings of these extremely beautiful white women. And what he's saying is that you ignore the defects and blemishes and you create something more perfect than any one original. So therefore, he's teaching you how to draw a beautiful woman And he's saying that you should ignore blemishes and only go for the most beautiful, try to make your women extremely beautiful. So a lot of this material is going to have a lot to do with beautiful women, right? And sort of the muse. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to retrace a little back a little bit, sticking to chronologically. I just wanted to I looked at this um, Jacques Collot. He was working in the 17th century, so he was born 19- 1592 and worked 1635. I looked at this beautiful original little... I mean, it was basically a zine of Intaglio prints that he did. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, from, I don't know, 500 years ago? Yeah, um, no, it's 400 years ago. Excuse me. Um <laughs> Oh, I just looked at a 400-year-old zine. But it was all images of beggars. Okay, so this is, like, a very common thing, right? The idea that the beautiful are the most moral, and therefore, yes. if you're if you're moral, you have a lot of money, and you're wealthy. Right? Yeah. It's more moral yeah. to be wealthy. <laughs> of course. And the idea, so these images of beggars were are sort of, like, these characters, right? So, like, images of just different types of people like different facial features sort of like examining of different facial features of lots of different um people that he saw in the urban environment um so moving on to these i looked at a bunch of these original character watercolor sketches this is what it was titled in the museum Uh um by g.n woodward and isaac Crookshank, um, 1792. So we're moving a little bit. I believe this was in London. So these are like humorous caricatures in London, right? 1792, 1794. So a lot of this was, this is pre-comic strip, right? So th- in the idea of the f- comic strip came about 100 years later. But this is the linearity of it. So this is the history. This is like illustrative history. And this is like a humorous illustration. OK. Right. And so what he did is like he d- created characters. Right. So he drew different people from London society. There was one that was titled uh, Sunday Equestrians or Hyde Park Candidates for Admiration. And it was just <laughs> a bunch of different types of people and their horses. Nice. I can probably. Yeah, it's I, I can probably share some photos that I took. Of these originals and a lot of this as you can tell i mean these are like jokes from hundreds of years ago so Mm -hmm. it's sort of hard to this is a different society this is a different time period so it's sort of hard to talk about these examples in ways that are clear to a modern audience (laughs) so yeah like different (laughs) types of humor yeah but um i mean a lot of it is like tall larger fat women are funny Is like a sort of a common theme. Skinny, beautiful people, like with like fair features, you know, like small, basically small features. That's still like a common theme in this time period. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is 1792. I'm going to move to 1791. Right. So what what he was talking about is caricatures. So this is a how to draw book of rules for drawing caricatures published in 1791. This was also a hand sewn pamphlet and it was 20 pages. Wow. So I just pulled some text quotes from this. So this is from the main body of the text uh, for rules of drawing caricatures by Francois Gross printed in London. Mm -hmm. To obtain this art, the student should begin to draw the human head from one of those drawing books where all the forms and proportions constituting beauty according to the European idea are laid down. So he's telling you, just like the elementary book I was just telling you about, right? So he's saying that in order to draw a caricature, you need to draw, uh, know how to draw the platonic ideal of beauty first. And what's interesting is he actually points out that this is all the constituating beauty according to the European idea of beauty, right? And then he's sort of, he has a little asterisk next to European idea. And then he has these huge footnotes about beauty. Yeah, And so he goes on in these footnotes for like three pages that take up (laughs) this footnote, takes up the majority of these pages. And this book is only 20 pages long, right? All right. So this is the footnote. The features of the human face and the former proportions of the body and limbs are in particular countries subsequent to certain peculiarities. An agreement with or material deviation from constitutes the local idea of beauty or deformity I say local because it does not appear That there are any fixed or positive ideas of either If there were, if there were They must necessarily be the same everywhere Which is by no means the fact For they differ so greatly in different places That what is esteemed in perfection in one country Is in another pronounced a deformity Okay, so he... <laughs> Interesting, right. So yeah. 1791, he goes on to describe beauty in different countries, which my guess is these were sort of stereotypical ideas of what other countries consider beautiful. They were sort yes. of you can sort of imagine what he was referring to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's a lot of the ideas like colonization and like travel and exotification is like sort of where these ideas are coming from. But at the heart of it, he is sort of addressing that European beauty ideals are not the universal, right? That they are societal based.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, so I
0: think that's like... I don't know. I'm just giving a little props to Francois Gros here. And he goes on to say, the sculptors of ancient Greece seem to have diligently observed the forms and proportions constituting the European ideas of beauty and upon them have formed their statues. These measures are to be met with in many drawing books. A slight deviation from them by the predominancy of any feature constitutes what is called character and serves to discriminate the owner thereof. And to fix the idea of identity, this devotion or peculiarity, aggravated, forms caricature. So this is interesting. So the idea of the word character Mm -hmm. is slight deviations from the canon beauty and to create aggravated, so like larger deviations from the canonical beauty becomes a caricature. Okay. I don't know if this is the origin of the word character, but they use character in a different way yeah and that we now use character as just like an individual in a story right yeah Uh, he also talks about avoiding ugliness and making things ridiculous should incite laughter and shouldn't be vulgar he does have a lot of racist generalizations about eye shapes and stuff Mm -hmm. um so this is 1790 and so the next we're jumping um, we're jumping about sixty years back to the essays of physiognomy, which I talked about, right? So written yeah, by yeah. John Caspar Lavater in German, and then published in London, translated, eighteen fifty-three. So we're back to the idea of physiognomy, right? So this is what they talk about. No laughing matter. Yeah. Um. These writings by Johann Caspar Lavater, right? So it was published in English in 1853, but he wrote it in the late 1770s. Okay. <laughs> so he wrote the idea of physiognomy in the 1780s and 90s. That's when it became popular. Right. And that's when caricature became a thing. Just right. like what I was saying is like the, the rules of how to cr- draw, like right, the, right, how right. to draw a book on caricature, right? Mm-hmm. But all his early work also included... The idea of medical illustration for this, right? Okay. Yeah. So there were illustrations that were medical illustrations, not humorous illustrations. Um, so this is a quote from Catherine Hart's essay from No Laughing Matter. Another source of visual categorization of the human body emerged in the 18th century medical texts with illustrations by Johann Vadelar which represented elaborate images of human skeletal structure and musculature that were painstakingly constructed for the measurements of a variety of European specimens. The mm-hmm. purpose was to conjure up the perfect human form for the medical and artistic study of the body, and so doing these texts underlined assumptions of the, of the ideal Based upon race. Mm The 18th century European emulation of classical and moral ideal is manifest in a physical type, existed in tandem with the increasing domination by Western powers of colonial subjects, as well as the heightened traffic of enslaved peoples, mainly from fringe West Africa to the Americas. The most powerful force to reify these visual representations of human stereotype in 18th century society was the popular print participated in England where the production of comic visual satires and caricatures rapidly developed into the thriving business for publishers. So she's going back to talking about Lavater. There's a direct link between Lavater's ideas and development of racial hierarchies based on physiognomic measurements of the cranial structure as well as the idea that the beautiful was linked to moral superiority. And mm-hmm. in, the insidious nature of Lavater's theory can be seen in racial caricatures, ad visuals, satires produced throughout the next two centuries. Yeah. So 1853, Essays on Physiognomy, written 60 years prior, is published, right? And we had established that this was after England abolished slavery, mm-hmm. um, but before the United States did. Right, right,
1: right. But there was abolitionist movements at that time.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the thing with all these dates is it's never like immediate. <laughs> <laughs> here's the date it's over. No, it's it's hundreds of decades. It's like takes so long for these things to happen. It's not right. yeah. Yeah. To act like a singular date is the end all be all of it all is. So in the 1870s, Darwin's theories of evolution mm-hmm. um came to the United States. Um, I've talked about them before and how they relate to racist ideas of child development and how Darwin's theories of human evolution fed into a lot of racism um, at this time period. Mm -hmm. So this is how it affected art education. This is from a paper called Life Drawing from Ape to Human. Charles Darwin's Theories of Evolution and William Rimmer's Art Anatomy. Mm -hmm. So William Rimmer's Art Anatomy is from 1877. This is a paper written in 2003. Darwin's theories, however, had a significant impact on the development of life drawing in the United States. William Rimmer's Art Anatomy first published in 1877, represents the most comprehensive anatomy book issued in the United States at the time and provides new insight into the influence of Darwin's evolutionary theory on artistic practice. Rimmer's drawing book is largely unknown owing to the ethnographic nature of the publication, yet it is precisely this approach that furthers our understanding of the reception of Darwin's theories in the United States during the 1870s. To fully appreciate the revolutionary nature of Rimmer's Art Anatomy, it is essential to understand the broader context of drawing books available in the United States when the work appeared. Despite the prevalence of American drawing books, an estimated 145,000 were in circulation in the United States prior to the Civil War. Rimmer's art anatomy was unprecedented for its extensive descriptions and drawings of the anatomy of men, women, children, and for its associations with Darwinian theories of evolution and emotion in man and animals. Okay. Bales and Rimmer's concern with drawing the figure in profile is greatly indebted to the study of physiognomy, practice of identifying personality types based upon salient physical features. Developed during the 18th century in France and England and widely disseminated in books and prints, physiognomy appealed to many 19th century American artists. So, a lot... Of... <laughs> Thank you for coming along with me, because this might seem boring, but it, it f- it's really important to be building this foundation, okay? Yeah,
1: because this is where all of this... Um, the, the, using... Uh, like a false understanding of a scientific principle to justify a a morality judgment, right, of, like, caricature.
0: Yes. So the book is extremely divisive of different races, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so it showed, they, they talk about, like, the human head a lot. So there was a lot of focus and for the profile, right, and the skull. Right. But it has a lot to do with, like, how, and this is something we've talked about before is, like, what, you just mentioned abolition, right? Yes. So uh, Rimmer actually considered himself to be an abolitionist. However, he still had, this book that he created, Art Anatomy, still had a lot of divisions between uh, the races of people that he included in his book. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rimmer attempted to distinguish between the ideal and the aberrant in ethnic models. But that saying is like, he attempted to have the beautiful mm-hmm. in different races in this book in 1877. But, oh, and in doing okay. so, believed he remained true to his abolitionist stance. His incorporation in art anatomy of comparative anatomy and the most recent ideas about evolution not only offered a new approach to the instruction of life drawing, but also sought to challenge some of the more, the more deleterious stereotypes found in earlier studies of physiognomy. Deleterious. Deleterious. So what this book is attempting to do is still find extremely beautiful. I think this is what this is saying, right? Uh-huh. But it's still reproducing profiles, it's still using the the language of physiognomy education.
1: Okay. Yeah. So it, it's not it's just um it strikes me as very like uh still believing that false idea that like in like appearance-based morality and also in like Different racial groups and ethnic groups being like at different points of development. Um, but like trying yeah, to use that. Yeah, because he does uses
0: Darwinian ideas. Yep, yep. Yeah.
1: Cause because I mean a lot of a lot of um abolitionism is not the same thing as anti-racism. So there's a lot of
0: mm, true. Yeah. So that was the 1870s in art education, right? And mm-hmm. then a lot of what E was talking about is 1890s to 1930s, right? Um, so that yeah. is the development of the comic strip, the development of um, minstrelsy, mm-hmm. and the early cartoons, early animation. And so I'm going to be jumping to this book titled Figure Drawing and Portraiture in Lead Pencil, Chalk and Charcoal, written and illustrated by Boro Johnson. This was published in London, 1931, right? Okay. So, um Page 10, he says, the ancient Greeks had more opportunities than we have for studying the human figure in its highest perfection, as owing to lack of physical exercise, the majority of people nowadays are scary superfluous fat. It is not my intention here to enter deeply into this highly scientific subject, but merely to confine myself to such points as to be of assistance to the art student, and to discuss briefly the chief facts relating to external form, matter, and appearance of the nude and draped figure— Facts which will, if properly assimilated, give the beginner from many egregious blunders in an attempts to portray the human form. So this book is still 1931 and is talking about the ideal perfect human, the canon, but it is acknowledges that it is, ignores that most people do not look like this. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So in a later chapter, in chapter 11, it's titled Character and the Expression of the Emotions. And again, here's that word character. Okay. Right. So page 69. Character, as understood from the pictorial point of view, is often formed by habits, by the different emotions, which is repressed or let loose. And a character in this sense must not be confounded with conduct or reputation as we understand it when we speak of a fine or a bad character. We can take the character, for example, as illustrating an odd or eccentric person by his habits or by his appearance in face or figure. Mm. Caricature is an exaggeration of the most striking characteristics of an ordinary person, but with a likeness strongly maintained. The physiology, so this is not physiognomy, this is physiology, of the face so that's just of the body, right? right? Physiology is just of the body.
3: Right, right. Of the
0: face is regulated by its muscles according to the degree in which the passions or the emotions are brought into play. The expressive emotions of the body, more particularly the hands, contribute in a large measure to suggesting the character and the type of person portrayed. Okay? Okay. Thank you for running, going along with me quoting from the 1930s. It's hard to understand. But, again, is the example of going away from the canon in order to create character, right? In order to create something who is of a fine or a bad character. Right. right. So you're going, moving away from the idea of beauty.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting framing it that way, I feel like. Because I think that is true. I, th- there was another essay in um, No Laughing Matter. that Did you read the... Um, Bartolomeo uh, Passorotti and Comic Images of Black Africans in Early Modern Italian Art? No. Because that's, um, you know, the canon was established in Early Modern Italian Art.
0: Um, oh, I did read a little bit of that. Yeah. No, but tell me. Well, I, there's like a specific
1: part that was interesting to me. They're analyzing a particular mannerist painting uh, by Bartolomeo uh, Passerotti. Mannerism being sort of uh, in like the late 1570s. Um, so like very Around the, like, early, (laughs) early modern. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it was, um, it is not always easy to determine whether intentionally racialized humor is part of the content of a work of art made prior to the 18th century, when racial prejudice against people of Black African descent became especially dominant and explicit in Western culture. Human physiognomic difference has surely played a, a role in defining what is perceived as visually comic. And there is undoubtedly a case to be made for seeing traces of this in ancient Greek and Roman uh, representations of black Africans, um, though there is no clear consensus about what relation this might have to an early notion of racial prejudice. In the post-antique tradition of Western art, there is little in, little in the way of unmistakably comic imagery and the European visual depiction of the black African before the late 1500s. There are exaggerations of basic components of Black African visual identity as it was understood by Europeans. Dark brown skin color, tightly curled hair, broad and or bulbous nose, full lips. Um, But even when this verges on caricature, it does not exceed what is applied to adjoining non-African characters, nor is the behavior of Black Africans characterized as especially humorous or bizarre. But there was Mm. something that was interesting. Oh, there we go. So this is from the same chapter that there was something understood by many Europeans as intrinsically comic about black Africans is shown by the widespread habit of referring to them by antiphrasis. The practice of naming them something by its opposite. Several black European court servants were known by names like John White. Mm. And, And he goes on to say that, um. Isabella d'Este and other Italian aristocrats around 1500 often referred to their black children they acquired as page as pages and maid servants as buffoni which means buffoon. Um mm. this is again around the same time period as like the canon being developed and established in art historical traditions and already there's like a societal uh viewing of black Africans that uh, these Italians came in contact with as like because there's like an obvious difference between them that it's like funny.
0: Yeah. Yeah, th- that there's like a vi- visual humor. Yeah. Yes. Um. Thank you for looking that up. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna move away from fine art, mm-hmm. and uh, just like you was saying, it's not hugely separated, right? Yeah. And a lot of these, a lot of these points that these fine art how to drawing books are making is that you don't want to over-exaggerate features because then it becomes comical, right? Right. And then I have tons of quotes so my next source is the famous cartoon famous artist's cartooning course from 1956 right so okay. this is peak comic book time right yes so this is um seduction of the innocent is 1954 mm-hmm. right and so this book uh, famous Car- artist's cartooning course it's written by Rube Goldberg, Milton Caniff, Al Cap, Harry Hangenstein, Hangenstein, I don't know how to say his name, Willard Mullen, Gurney Williams, Dick Cavalli, Whitney Darrow Jr., Virgil Parch, and Barney Toby. Did you
1: say Milton Caniff? Yeah. He's the quote I read earlier.
0: From what?
1: Remember the, um, when I, I saw, I talked earlier about the, um, 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 use of minority characters in comics. And you said the thing about the Chinese pirate. Great. Yes. Same guy. I just wanted to make sure our listeners knew that also.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So this book sort of has assignments, shows you how to draw cartoons for money, commercial use. I think you probably ordered this book, right? I think it was like something you bought. Um, So it's mostly white people in the book. What I came across is there was one racist character of a native American that I saw, but otherwise, mm-hmm. it was mostly white people. Uh, so in volume one, they show you how to draw a face. They always default to men, and then the girls are always like a variant of men. Right. Um, girls and women. So remember when drawing girls that the features are much softer. Be careful of cheek lines, eyebrows and all-important hair. Later in the course, girls will be treated in greater detail. For now, these pages will give you a good basic start. Girls add up to approximately one half of the human race, which is your audience. Learn to draw them. <laughs> that what I'm going to go into now is just like what ho- these how to draw books are saying, right?) Mm-hmm so proportions of the figure the ideal human figure is about eight heads tall but as few of us are ideal the cartoonist ignores this rule by varying the size and shape of one or more of the six basic parts the cartoonist can create a type of any figure he wishes (laughs) and then here's the female figure Because the female figure plays such an important part in the art of cartooning today, we will start right now to point out how few of the things that make the girl figure sexy and not just the man's figure with long hair. The good rule is to remember that the female of the species is thought of as being soft and round, while the male is hard and angular. When drawing the girl's figures strive for smoothness of line later, about half your readers will be female. Never forget it. Um, so Yeah, so like <laughs> moving from <laughs> Um This is something that's always fascinated me, and it's still super prevalent in comic books today. Mm is that the idea that men and women of the human race are just, like, extremely different. <laughs> like, like they are completely different species. And you draw them completely differently. It's always surprised me. And here's another, um, so again, talking about the canon and the difference with cartooning in the canon. Uh, this is, like, talking about the comic book head from okay. this book. A mere exaggeration of figures does not always convey character. There must be mobility in the features and feeling that a human being is pictured by the lines represented on the face, no matter how comic or grotesque the face may be. Um, they're describing a picture. On the opposite page is the, it's shown the head of Apollo, considered to be the most finely proportioned of the Greek gods. Surrounding Apollo are heads that are about as different in beauty and symmetry for him, from him as possible. That these comic f- heads and faces are as alive as the perfect Apollo and perhaps convey more character. Moreover, they are not ugly or in an unpleasant sense. A face can be interesting, homely, comic, crazily proportioned, and not be ugly. Ugliness is something to be avoided in cartooning. It takes experience to know what is grotesque without being ugly. It's so interesting when they talk about ugliness and all these things. Like, what is ugliness, right? Yeah. Like, I don't understand. (laughs) Then they talk about pretty girls. Um, some of my favorite quotes. <laughs> the pretty girl, the dame, the frail, the tomato, the cookie, the cutie is always welcome in cartoon, no matter how grotesque the rest of the characters may be. Right? The cookie. In drawing a pretty girl, whether she's a society dame, farmette, sorry, like a farmerette. She's a farm a female farmer, a farmerette.
2: A farmerette. Waif you
0: know. or shop girl. Don't be too skimpy with the bust or the thigh line. (laughs) Sex appeal and give the reader very satisfactory eye exercise as he follows the story. Eye exercise. (laughs) Eye exercise. The sexy gal must have long shapely legs. A short, dumpy figure has not much appeal and should be avoided. Your ability to draw pretty girls will have a lot to do with your success in the cartoon business. We repeat, you learn to draw by drawing, and that is particularly true with pretty girls. Devote a good proportion of your working and practice day to drawing pretty girls. Always keep your eye peeled for beauty. Most men do.
2: Lord. All right. All
0: right. I know. This is interesting. So, this is 1956, right? Mm-hmm. So, this is special types. So this is from the famous artist cartooning course. This is chapter 10 of volume one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, types with an occupation. Certain types with an occupation will differ. All the men on this page are officers of the law, but each has his own special characteristics. While we're on the subject of law, remember cops have a tough and serious job. Some not-too-bright cartoonists, mostly in comic books, have caused trouble by having their cops outsmarted too often by their villains. This makes the villains look too good and leads to investigation by juvenile delinquency authorities who <laughs> demand censorship. Keep it funny, but remember that crime does not pay. Um, there's types of women. And so, like, there's, like, the all-American boy, the doorman, showgirl, Miss America. So this is something that comes up in other how-to-draw cartooning books, is, like, these types of characters that you can use. And a lot of them have to do with, um... So here's studious, Coed. Slim, almost gaunt, vitally interested in classical studies. Right? So it sort of has to do clothes and, like expression and like the way that you draw a character has to do with who they are right and this is starting to become familiar right so like this is still like related to physiognomy right so the the way a character's physical appearance becomes their personality so i have a couple more books a couple more how to draw books um there's how to draw comics the marvel way by Stan Lee and John Buscema. Okay. Um, It was originally 1978. I was looking at the reprint from 1984. So, I mean, they talk about um, the figure. So they talk about how the average person is six and a half heads tall. But take it... uh, take a look at the sketch of reed richards notice that he's eight and three quarters head tall. if we were to draw a hero he's got to look like a hero he should be of heroic proportions unfortunately the normal six and a half head tall proportions would seem somewhat dumpy on, when drawn in a marvel mag <laughs> needless to say we also make the shoulders good and wide and the hips real narrow naturally as we're about to see the male is drawn much more angular than the female Right. And th- this is something I talked about in earlier books, right? Yeah. That women are softer <laughs> and men are angles. For women and how to draw comics the Marvel way, women, obviously, we need to we do not emphasize muscles on a female, obviously. Though we assume she's not a weakling, a woman is drawn to look smooth and soft as opposed to muscular, angular rendition of a man. We've also found that it's preferable to draw a female's head slightly smaller than a male's. In fact, she's generally drawn somewhat smaller all over except for the bosom. <laughs> I just the idea that women's heads are smaller, you know, just
1: naturally occurring in nature,
0: smaller so heads grotesque to me.
1: <laughs> what is there any in um the, this book and in the more like I guess uh, contemporary ones you were looking at was there any like Uh, gesture towards uh like ethnicity differences or anything or do they just strictly stick to like the male female generic like white person yeah
0: it does move and that's that's actually similar to what you were saying happens Mm -hmm. is that it is almost everyone in these books are white yeah what's interesting so they go on to talk about good looking and heroic like heroes are very handsome Mm -hmm. drawing the good guy as you can see is probably somewhat formulized task is what they say so like the here marvel heroes are all handsome right but drawing the bad guy ah that's where the fun is that's where you can let your imagination run riot and really do your thing as you know your average vile and vicious villain comes in all sizes shapes and categories of course you have to be sure his looks complement his character and personality again right Mm
3: -hmm.
2: so
0: their personality is mirrored in how they are physically drawn so they talk about their strong villains their sly ones the nutty ones the paranoid ones the ruthless ones the grotesque ones the deceptive ones the alien ones and then they have all these drawings right so Mm -hmm. the hero is always extremely beautiful with like very um perfect jawline um perfect eyes, small nose, small mouth, right? And then the villains all have exaggerated features, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, like, really, like, Physiognomy 101, right? Yeah. (laughs) The hero and the villain. And
1: that's interesting because I feel like that's still, like, that idea of, like, linking certain shapes to personalities and, like, depicting characters' personalities through their appearance is still, like, a very... Like, I feel like I was taught that when I was in school, you know? Like, I think it's still, like, a very common completely bogus method of like shorthand teaching people how to convey things visually
0: yeah absolutely absolutely like this is 1984 when this was reprinted like these are people working today yeah right yeah what's interesting so they don't have they have also very specific rules for drawing pretty girls Mm -hmm. and a lot of these rules are racialized right so like these like very small noses not tilted upwards, not too large nostrils, lips. They have rules that these lips are really, like, don't make them too thick, don't make the chin too prominent. Like, mm. very, very, very specific rules for pretty girls. Right. And also their idea of female villains is literally the pretty girls with a slightly more prominent jawline. Like, that's the only thing they add for a female villain. And then I wanted to get something more uh contemporary and this will be books that you and i had as a kid yes okay so i looked at anime mania how to draw characters for japanese animation but from 2002 written by christopher hart that should be a name that's really familiar to you christopher hart has published a lot of how to draw comic books actually i say it should be familiar to you but maybe as a kid you didn't even read the name of who made this book but if you look up christopher hart he's got a ton of how to draw books yes and you probably owned a few of them if you're a cartoonist of a certain generation and then he has or like if you went to the scholastic book fair as a kid and so he's got in this pay book 2002 page 11 casting is key right? Mm-hmm. So before we move on to drawing the figure, I want to mention character casting. The idea of casting your characters as one of the least discussed principles in how to draw books. I don't know why he says that. <laughs> as an artist, you are the casting director. You've got to consider the personality, age, gender, and role of a character in the story. For example, suppose you want a female computer specialist. What comes to mind? First, she should be young because younger adults are generally more computer savvy than older ad- adults. Okay, so this is sort of logical, but also he's talking about science fiction, so you can <laughs> be like an older adult like, who's good with computers. it immediately so doesn't I, matter. Yeah, like, sure. Um... <laughs> Then you'd consider giving her glasses, a stereotype for intelligence. You wouldn't give her the build of an intense athlete because her work isn't physical, of course. Um, you might make her attractive because she's perhaps the girlfriend of the group or team leader. Oh, of course. In this matter, you are casting the role before you even begin to draw. Oh, of because course, of course. only pretty girls can have romance in their life. And then he also has character types. And I just want to list off these character types because they're a lot like the character types that they have in the 1956 book. School bully, brainy kid, kid from the wrong side of the tracks, who of course was wearing a hoodie, a tomboyish loner, cheerleader, rich snob, cool dude, and class clown. And then I just sort of wanted to wrap up with this article i wanted to do more of an art education like a look at what art education is so like i just ran through centuries of how how racialized looking and the way that art history and art education is extremely biased Mm -hmm. by this idea of the canon right and it So it comes up in Art Education. So this article is by Nancy S. Parks from 2004. It's titled Bamboozled, a visual culture text for looking at cultural practices of racism. It was published in Art Education, the journal.
2: Mm
0: So um, this is a quote. European-based cultures have used what Hall 1997 refers to as a regime of representation, which has relied on stereotypes and other racist strategies to portray black people. Academics have examined issues of representation like identity, difference and obsession with otherness. The West has often depended on Eurocentric objects or images to interpret other cultures rather than the subjects of their own representational practices. Mm-hmm. This Eurocentric gaze has resulted in the process of racialized looking. Profound differences of history, culture, and experience have often been reduced to a handful of stereotypical features, which are read as if they represent the truth of nature, somehow inscribed on the body. They are assumed to be real because they can be seen difference visible to the naked eye. Mm. Similarly, Bennett, 1999, describes the traditional curriculum in the United States as having a racist character, particularly related to Africa and African American cultures. Racialized difference is associated in dominant practices of visual representation and has dramatic implications for pre-service and in-service art teachers. Mm. European white pre service and in service art teachers sometimes struggle with representation of non Western art and cultures as reflected in products children create that trivialize aesthetic beliefs and practices of cultures outside their own.
1: Mm. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. That was um, really good. No, I loved it. I love hearing that. And I seriously, do post up some of those pictures because I want to see them.
0: Yes, <laughs> I do want to do pictures because it is this is something I haven't seen documented. So that's mm-hmm. why I went to so many, these so many primary sources. Yeah. Is I haven't seen the documentation of how to draw books. Yeah, I- they really are biased and they encourage physiognomy they really do
1: yeah i mean physiognomy is just so deeply entrenched into how we shorthand and i think it does like like what i was talking about a little bit i think it does have a lot to do with sort of the industrialization of these art forms and like just like the the need to be economical um out of like a deeply racist, colonialist society. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That like, it it, it just ends up becoming so deeply ingrained and it's like, well, I'm trying to convey a message very quickly so I'm just going to fall back onto these ideas uncritically. Yeah. You know?
0: Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So now it's time for Letters to the Editor, our regular segment where we uh, either read emails that we've gotten from listeners or we sort of introduce... Additional resources for topics that we have already discussed. Um, Do you have anything for Letters to the Editor this month, E?
1: I do. Um, So this is a source I really wanted to include with our last episode on um, when we were talking about uh, queer underground comics and stuff um yeah susan Stryker, who is a uh sort of a a queer historian a trans historian um she does a lot of work on um pulp and she has a book on queer pulp um pulp fiction uh being that like the paperback dime novel era basically um she so queer pulp is really good because she basically breaks down she follows the a specific time period from like sort of like the heyday of pulps in like the 20s up to the decline of the golden age of pulp fiction in the 60s when they were sort of replaced by other forms of media. Um, but she's broken the book down into chapters and each chapter focuses on a particular like marginalized identity. So there's a lesbian chapter, a gay chapter, a bisexual chapter and a transgender chapter. Mm. And it's really interesting because she's, she um, not only does she talk about uh, like, the books that were being published, but she uh, highlights uh, actually, like, queer authors who are at the time working, who we were able to identify. Cool. Yeah, like, she identifies, I think she says there's, like, there were, like, about a dozen working lesbians in the uh, Pulp Fiction that, like, we we're aware of historically that we can actually, like with certainty say basically. Um, awesome. Yeah. And it is, it's really nice. And um, she actually, I, we talked, I know we talked a little bit about like the division of history, like how like lesbian history tends to be separated out from gay history. Um, and she actually does address that a little bit in the book. So it's really good. And I would recommend reading it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. So we want to say thank you to downtown boys for the use of their song wave of history. It's off their album, full communism. You can get it off their band camp. I want to mention my work on ComicArtEd.com. That's my education work. Um, You can also head over to DrawingADialogue.com. It's the home for the citation of this podcast. Um, There's a lot of information up there, so Mm -hmm. you can go check that out. Yeah. You can
1: email us at DrawingADialogue at gmail.com. We love to get emails. Um, did you say our Twitter already? No. Okay. You can also follow us on Twitter at draw a dialogue. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at ehetjae And
0: you can follow me at
1: Kathy G John. Yeah. So Kathy, what are you reading?
0: Um, I'm gonna be honest, <laughs> I'm still reading. I've been reading these two books for months and months, and I haven't actually said them on what are we reading yet? Okay. Um because I've been shy, but there's that's all I've been reading. Um, so I'm reading the first book of the Witcher series. Okay, which I don't have with me right now. And then I'm also reading. It's like a fantasy book. It's what the the video game is based off of. And then I'm also reading uh, the Alienist by Caleb Carr. Um, I don't know. They're just like fiction books. Yeah, just reading some fiction books. Um, How dare what are you, you reading, E? How dare you enjoy fiction?
1: <laughs> I okay. Um so I picked up um Merrick Kay and uh Nina Pilari's new poem uh, poetry book, Total Mood Killer. Um Oh cool. Yeah, it's really good. I've been sort of chipping away at it. Um my cat has chewed up one corner of it.
0: Uh, collector's item. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but no, it's really good, and um, the other thing I wanted to uh, say is, uh, because I just watched it a couple days ago, and it's still very, like, impactful, is um, Janelle Monae's new album Dirty Computer um, dropped, and accompanying it, she put up a, like, 45-minute emotional picture is what she's calling it, Um, and it is really, uh, stunning and impactful. <laughs> um, what is it? So, uh, emotional, uh, so dirty computer is her, um, it's a sci-fi. She, she does a lot of like futuristic sci-fi and dirty computer is her, like, it's more personal to her than her other, uh, like her previous work has been. But it's about the plot of the story of the picture is that this is it's like a society where if you deviate from the norm in any way, you're called a dirty computer. And they uh, basically reprogram you into being clean again. Um, And Mm. she each song is that plays in the picture is actually one of her memories that they're erasing. Um, But it's about her and her girlfriend who is played by Tessa Thompson um and like how they fell in love and then like tessa and her, uh who's and her like they uh basically escape from the um facility and it's really good um it's like very very wow. beautiful
0: cool yeah cool right. so that's all i got thank you so much E thank you farewell to our intrepid volunteers <laughs>